Praise God. Thank you guys so much. <clears throat> Good evening. Um, yes. So we're going to be in Galatians. Uh, we're going to be in Galatians um, until we're done with the book of Galatians. Uh, it's in the New Testament. It's about halfway through the New Testament. It's page 972 in my Bible, if that's helpful for anybody else. Um, so it's about 972 pages in. Uh, <clears throat> where, uh, where we're going tonight is, uh, is we're going to see the Apostle Paul share his story. The Apostle Paul is the author of this book. Um, he is the author of this book, and he is going to open up kind of this, this window for his readers to say, this is my story. This is, this is what happened in my life. This is how I got to be where I am. Um, and, and the truth and where we're going to go tonight, to just give you a little preview, is we're going to talk, um, talk about what Paul's story is. We're going to see that in Scripture. We're going to talk about what our stories are, and we're going to talk about uh, where, what God's story is and how we're a part of that. And um, maybe, this is a, maybe this is a disconnect, uh, but I have a four-week-old son, and as I'm holding him on a regular basis, because that's all you can do with a four-week-old, he doesn't do anything other than just sit there motionless, and he squirms a little bit. Um, he offers nothing to me. He doesn't mow. He doesn't clean up after himself. He just poops and eats and sleeps. Uh, he can't even support his own head. He's that lazy. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, as I'm sitting there looking at this four-week-old, um, by God's grace, Lord willing, um, this four-week-old, four um, he is going to grow to be a man. Um, he is going to, Lord willing, God gives him many years in his life. And God is going to write a story in the life of my son, Miles. I've got a three-year-old named Charlie, and God is telling a story with his life. I look at my own life and my wife. I look at you guys, the people I get to walk closely with. Um, we are, there is a story being written by our life, with our life. And the question is, is that story glorifying to God? The question that we're going to look at what Paul, how Paul tells his story, and we're going to say, okay, is the story of my life something that is glorifying to God? And we're going to unpack uh, what that actually looks like. And that's just kind of a tease of where we're going. Um, uh, this is the part of the sermon where every week I'm supposed to, I struggled with this last week too, I'm supposed to tell you why to pay attention, right? Like, okay, great, now what, what is the purpose? Like, why should I dial in? Where we, you know, what is, why do I really need to listen to this sermon? Um, and I've been thinking about that question the last couple days. As I've studied this all week, I think, okay, why do we really need to hear this? And I, I'm having a hard time landing on anything else other than because it's the word of God. Because it's the word of God. And so my urge to you is um, I really believe, um, I believe there's nothing fancy about the sermon I'm about to give. I, I believe there's nothing fancy about the, the text, uh, the 11 verses that we're going to read tonight and we're going to unpack and study tonight. Um, there are these kind of weird verses. Galatians is Paul giving these really powerful commands to his people. And he's, he's giving them these life applications. But then this section is kind of this pause. So he gives these great commands. He pauses. He tells this little narrative about a story. And he gives us some travel history of what he's been doing the last few years. And then he jumps back into these powerful theological just grenades. right? And so the whole book is full of that. But this is this not fancy section. And yet all week, and especially the last few days, I think God is going to do something really powerful in this room 
Um, tonight, I think God is going to do something powerful with this time. And I don't mean people are going to levitate and people are going to speak languages they've never spoken before and somebody shoots laser beams out of their eyes. Not that kind of power. I mean that I, I really believe God is going to change some hearts tonight. Um, and I think God is going to do that, not because of me or because we picked the right songs leading into the sermon. I think he's going to do it because his word is powerful. And we're going to look at 11 or 12 verses. And I think because his word is powerful, I think hearts are going to be changed. I think there's people who might go from death to life. I think there's people who might have calloused hearts in here, me included, who God's going to shave off some just shingles of, of callousness from our hearts. That's my prayer. That's my hope. That's my expectation that I want to put on you guys. No pressure on me because I don't have the power to do that anyway. Um, that's going to be a word of God, Holy Spirit thing, uh, not a me thing. So that's what we're in for. Here we go. Verse 11. Verse 11 in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to this church in Galatian. He says this, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, what's he doing? What is Paul doing here? He is making sure with these first two verses in this section here, he's making sure that his reader knows that this authority does not come from him, but it comes from Jesus Christ. Right off the bat, hey, I want to let you know, guys, the gospel I preached was not man's gospel. I didn't receive it from man. I wasn't taught it. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Right off the bat, the authority isn't mine. It's Jesus Christ. And that's hugely important. Uh, if you've ever played the telephone game, the telephone games where you pass the, like I would share a message, like uh, furry bunnies shouldn't live in igloos. And then you pass it and you pass it and it goes all the way through and then it gets back to Josh and it's Bill Clinton owns a sailboat, you know, or something. Yes, right? I don't know why that was the thing I thought of. Uh, but, right, it's just the idea that you pass this message on from one to the next and it gets all distorted and delusioned and that's, the premise that he's coming from, last week, if you were here, we talked about, and in this section right before this, Paul is saying, don't be deceived. Don't fall into a distorted gospel. There's all these gospel distortions that we can stumble into, and the crowd he's writing to have definitely stumbled into them. They are believing now a false gospel, a distorted gospel. And he's saying, don't believe in the distorted gospel. Believe in the one true gospel that I gave to you originally because it wasn't for me. It's not the telephone game. I got it straight from Jesus. I got it straight from a revelation of Jesus. So right off the bat, Paul is letting us know, letting his readers know, man, this authority is, uh, is from Christ. It's to support uh, what he was talking about at the beginning of this book and saying, don't wander into those weeds. Don't wander into those weeds. This isn't something I came up with. Uh, this is from Christ. So then he goes into, and this is, this is really key. This is uh, incredible that, that Paul does this. Uh, I want us to understand the context and the significance of this. We'll see if we have time. Verse 13, he goes into basically a 15-second version of his testimony is the Christian word for it, right? His story of how change in his life happened. Verse 13, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So uh, he, here's what he's doing here. Uh, in these two verses, he's saying, 
Here's who Paul was. Um, He was a man who was um, not only a persecutor of the church, um, he was also just knocking it out of the ballpark in the religion that he had bought into and was zealous and was on fire for the religion of, of Judaism. And not only that, at the same time, he was passionate about wiping out followers of Christ. The most significant, one of the most significant human voices in our faith as Christians, if you're a Christian in this room, is the Apostle Paul. And in the first chapter of this letter to this church, he says, hey, I just, I just want to make sure everyone's aware of who I am. I'm the guy who killed Christians, was passionate about it, was zealous towards a, a totally contrary belief system, and zealous and just knocking it out of the park, and, and everyone looked up to me and said, man, that's the guy, that's the guy, that's the guy. Um, that's who Paul is. He was a big deal. He was also a major persecutor of the church. When, when we read this, too, the way it's laid out, um, I don't want to nerd it up a whole lot, but the way it's laid out in the original language, it talks about this ongoing passion of persecuting the church. So think of something that you are passionate about. Think of something you're passionate about now, the thing that like, drives you, gets you up out of bed, the thing that like, you go to and you think, man, and maybe, that, maybe you are passionless right now. Think of a time when you weren't passionless, before you had a horrible job that sucked all the life out of you, right? A period of time in your life when it was like, man, I used to be so passionate about this. Paul's passion, getting him out of bed, man, getting him out of bed, firing him up. He was passionate about making sure followers of Christ got arrested and killed. Women, children, men, passionate about wiping out Christians. That's who we're sitting under. That's the transparency of the author of the book we're studying, saying that is who I was. The the modern day equivalent would be ISIS, right? Like it's gotta be ISIS, right? It's gotta be this man who is passionate about wiping them out. And not only that, also so good at the religion he believed. So what he's doing is he's setting us up for the fact that this whole Christian thing wasn't just something that I was raised with and I was like, yeah, I gotta make a living somehow. I guess I'll tell people about Jesus. He was passionate against it. Here's the pivot. Verse 15. But, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. There's two big things going on right here in these three verses. Two big things. I want to focus on the first thing first, in the first couple of verses there, in verse 15 and 16. Um, We have Paul over here, this guy who passionately hates the church, passionately hates believers. A church like Galatia, he would have loved to find and destroy. And now here he's writing them encouragement so that they might keep going and prolong and fight the good fight. That's who we have. And then in verse 15, but... That's who he was, but this major pivot, major transition, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, this major life change, 15-second little testimony of, of Paul's story of what happened, and this huge transition of this word but. He went from that to that. How? 
Um, I want to dissect these two verses real quick. I want to dissect them, and I want to show you how rich these two verses are. I want to show you what is happening here. First thing we see happening here is God saved Paul. God saved Paul. Paul didn't save himself. God saved Paul. When he who set me apart, right, later he talks about was pleased to reveal his son to me. He's talking about God, right? He didn't have the makeup to be a follower. I mean, he hated Christians. He was really knocking out, the, you know, knocking out of the park the whole other religion thing. God pulled him and saved him. God saved Paul. Second thing we, we see right here in the text, God saved Paul by grace right there at the end of verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. So God saves. God saves by grace, not because Paul was doing anything that deserved saving. He saves. He saves by grace. And look at this. God saved Paul by grace through Christ. He was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So God saves Paul through the vessel of Christ. He saves him by Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not that God saves Paul and says, hey, um, Paul, God here, I'm saving you. Hey, by the way, have you met Jesus? He's a big part of this thing too. You should get to know him. It wasn't a by the way. It was God is saving Paul by the work of Christ. Right there in, in verse 16, was pleased to reveal his son to me. That was the vessel for his salvation. Christ was how he was saved. And then we also see that he was saved, he saved Paul for the sake of others. It says, in order that I might preach him, in verse 16. In order that I might preach for him, right? We, we, we see that. Preach him among the Gentiles. And then also we know that God saved Paul by grace through Christ for the sake of others and for his glory. And we know that from verse 24, which is gonna be the last verse we tackle tonight. So a little bit of a spoiler alert. Just in a, really a verse and a half, because it's not even all of verse 16. Scripture shows us God saves. God saves by grace. God saves by grace through Christ. God saves by grace through Christ so that we might go and share and for his glory. God does this. This is how God operates time and time and time and time and time again. Theologically, we see it in, in other letters, in, in historic letters, in, in Paul's own life here in a verse and a half. We see the power of our sovereign God saving, how he saves and why he saves. That's huge. Let's not fly by a verse and a half and miss what's happening there. Um, okay, he continues. Uh, this, is, this is important. He continues and he says, Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, which Cephas is another word for Peter, the apostle Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. <clears throat> Why does he write this? Why does Paul, here in these two verses, three verses, why is he giving us his meeting schedule and his itinerary? So three years, I was in Jerusalem. I visited this guy. It was a great man. And then was, I was only there for 15 days. And I, saw, I didn't see anybody else except for that. I did see him for a second, and then I was back. Why does he do that? He does it because, again, Paul is trying to communicate. It's so important that we grab our brains around this, this section of Scripture. He's trying to communicate, this isn't me. This isn't me. I got this from Jesus. And so he's really importantly showing you a timeline God saved him, and then 
he, it was three years. It was three years before he came down and hung out with the other apostles. So you might think, okay, how would a religion, like, do we really buy this thing, the whole Christianity thing? I don't know. I got doubts about it. I'm not sure about this whole Christian thing. He is saying, look, we didn't get together and plan this. I didn't decide, okay, man, I'm going to do, do the Christian thing. Let me go meet with the top-notch Christians. Let me go meet with the other guys who walked with Jesus and actually know how this Christian life is supposed to be lived. Three years I was away from them. And then I saw Peter for like 15 days, and I ran into one other guy, James. He's saying we didn't corroborate. Is that the word corroborate? Is that a word? Corrobor- corroborate? Cor- huh? Corroborate's a word? Corroborate. I feel like it's missing a vowel or something. He didn't corroborate. I can't say that. I can't in good conscience. The hardest, the hardest word for me, this is totally off rails now, uh, brewery. The word brewery is impossible to say and not sound like an idiot. We corroborate our story at a brewery. Corroborating the brewery. Okay. We're off the rails now. Let's just go home, man. I ruined it. I ruined the sermon. All right. Okay. Here's the point. Here's the point. Um, the point is he didn't get together and scheme with all these guys, whatever that word is. It feels uncomfortable saying. He, you know what I'm talking about, right? You're tracking with me? We're family here. He didn't all get together and just say, hey, guys, let's, let's come up with this thing together. Let's all scheme and, and come up with a story that makes sense because if we're going to push this whole Christian thing forward, if we're going to be these guys and start this new thing and create this new way of life and living and have followers, then we all need to get in a room and we need to decide. He says, I didn't do that, man. I got saved. This is where I was, messed up, killer of Christians, hated the Christian faith, but God, I'm over here now. And then three years, three years, I'm, doing, I'm meeting with God, I'm growing, and then I show up three years later and meet up, and, and they're in line. That's why he's saying that. That's why it's important that he's saying it, because Paul wants us to know it's okay to doubt. I mean, this, the Bible is full of, of great answers to really tough questions. If you have ever thought, if you've ever thought, man, is this thing really true? Like, do I really believe this? Do I really believe Jesus was who he said he was and did this? And then all these guys, like, it's, there's, some, there's some major steps of faith here, some stretches that I've got to take. Paul was right there with you. And Paul was saying, I, I, Dad, that could be an easy doubt that you have. Let me show you why that's not what happened. I love that about Scripture. I love that about Scripture. Then this happened. Verse 21, and this is, I want to land the plane on, on this section, and then I want to jump into our story and God's story. So in Galatians 21 through 24, he says, then I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia, right? So he's kind of continuing to say, hey, this, is, this was my geography. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And then verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. And they glorified God because of me. He's 12 verses. Paul is sharing his story. He's saying, here's my story, man. I was this guy. I was this guy. I had no business being a follower of Christ. I was, he, in other books, calls himself the chief sinner. I'm chief of all sinners. You think you guys are bad? I am topping that. Then God saves him. God saves him by grace, not because he did anything, 
through Christ Jesus, and he saves him to go share Christ with others and to bring him glory, which is exactly what Paul does with the rest of his life, with the rest of the breath in his lungs. He goes and he does that. That is the story that God is playing out in Paul. It's the story that he wants us to know, and he wants us to know it for one, so that we might have authority and trust the work of this book, that this book might have been penned by the Apostle Paul, the book of Galatians, or spoken to a scribe by Paul, but we know it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is without error. It is inspired and without error by our God. And Paul is saying, that's where this is coming from, not from me. You know me. I'm messed up. This is coming from God, so receive it that way. We see that we have a God of grace. We have a God who saves sinners, sinners like Paul. What is your story? That's Paul's story. Paul's story's over here. He's out of bounds. What is your story? <clears throat> I don't... Um, I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you've done. I don't know the doubts you've had or have. Um, I don't know your history or your past, and I don't need to know those things. Um, if you're in this room and you have thought before, you've thought, man, I'm ruined. From a spiritual standpoint, even the idea that you find yourself sitting in a church building tonight, and you have had the thought, but I am not mean. I'm ruined. Or I've gone too far. I've gone too far over here into the darkness. I've, I've ventured too far away from what I know, what I know in my heart, what in my soul convicts me. If you thought, man, I'm ruined. If you thought, man, I've gone too far. If, if you thought, I don't know enough. If you thought, how can I be in a relationship with, with the eternal God? How can I follow him? I don't know I've never read the book of Galatians. I don't know the difference between chapters and verses. And when you're talking about big words, I don't have a testimony. I don't, I don't have the knowledge to follow God. This is Paul. It doesn't get any darker. This, one of the single most influential voices in our entire faith was passionate. What drove him was killing Christians. And on top of that, his knowledge was so skewed towards lies and, and missing Christ. And that is who God chose to save. This book is filled with sinners. Sinners who commit adultery and kill other people and, and, and sinners who betray people and sinners who lie and sinners who are fools. It's, it's filled with broken, unworthy people who for some reason, the God of this story says, yeah, they're broken, but I love them anyway. And that God, but God, saves by his grace through Christ. Um, what is the story that you're telling in your life? Think about it. Just stop. Think about it. What is the story that you're telling in your life, and is it glorifying God? Is the story of your life glorifying God? And, and maybe you could say, yeah, maybe you could just kind of do a flyby because it's much safer and more comfortable and say, I'm living a pretty moral life. Then I would say zoom in closer. Are there corners in your life, are there attitudes and behaviors and, that are not glorifying to God? Let's identify those. Let's, let's bring those into the light. 
let's say this isn't glorifying to God, and I know it. I know I'm walking in a way that my spirit and scripture convicts and says this isn't his design, this isn't best, this isn't his way. Is your story glorifying God? Stare at that. And here's what I want to do. Um, In like five minutes, I want to talk about God's story. Because I don't want to just leave us with, um, with, okay, great, so identify sin in your own life and then go fix it. Because that's just painful, right? Because that's going to lead to one, just behavior modification. Oh, I'm going to stop doing things that I shouldn't be doing. Uh, It's going to lead to behavior modification and just tweaking your behavior, but there's no actual heart change. So the issue is still there. We still have a wicked heart. We still... Let me unpack where, where I'm coming with that. <clears throat> God's story. We hear Paul's. We know ours. At least we're semi-self-aware of ours. I think we could probably use a little more self-awareness. God's story. Five minutes. Stay with me. Genesis. Genesis. God shows up. He creates. One and two. He cre- chapters one and two. He creates beautiful, beautiful things. He systematically designs this this world we live in. He is the creator. Creates all this stuff. The sixth day he creates man. And he says, man, that is very good. Good, 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 very good when he gets to man. It's this beautiful story of what God's doing. And man is living in paradise and and woman joins him and it is this incredible thing and creation is good because God created it. And so this book, the story of God, starts with, man, things are great. Things are really, really great. Then chapter 3 in Genesis happens. So it takes us three chapters into, uh, into the Bible for it to all go foobar, right? Third chapter. And when we get to chapter 3, the serpent shows up, this great deceiver, and there's this whole scene of, man, are you really supposed to not eat this fruit that's on this tree, this, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And he, and he tempts him, and, and Adam and Eve, they take and they eat of the fruit. And even when he's tempting them, here's what the serpent says. In, in chapter 3, verse 5, he says this. The serpent says, you know what? If you eat that, God doesn't want you to eat that because if you eat that, you'll be like God. And he doesn't want that. In chapter three, verse five, that's what the serpent, that's what the deceiver deceives man into stepping into this sin and this disobedience. The one thing that God's like, hey, don't do that. Here's all this beautiful creation, my design, my design. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. Don't do this. Stay away from this. It's gonna bring death. And the serpent says, man, if you do that, you'll be like God. Sin enters the world. Sin enters the world. Our hearts are corrupt. All of a sudden, for the first time, people feel shame for being naked. There's shame. There's guilt. And shame and guilt paralyzes some of us as as believers, as people who are trying to track with God. Shame and guilt is not from God. Conviction is from God. Shame and guilt is something that came after the fall. We are guilty now because of this sin, and our hearts are broken, and we're off the rails And then the rest of Scripture, the Old Testament, up until we start seeing Jesus show up in the book of Matthew, halfway through this thing, the rest of Scripture is all of these pointing. One day, God is going to come back and he's going to redeem. We know it got all messed up. One day, God is going to come back and he's going to redeem you. He's going to fix what is broken. He's going to redeem and he's going to restore you. And so all of it, so you've got the story of Moses. Moses is a picture, an imperfect picture, but a picture in the shadow of the great 
the great leader that is to come who will perfectly set us free from slavery. You've got David, this imperfect king, but he is a picture of one day the perfect king who will reign. You've got the entire Old Testament screaming, screaming throughout history in the story that God is telling that one day God is going to fix this. We broke it. Our hearts are broken. Our hearts are messed up and sinful, and we don't choose things that are life-giving. We choose sin. We choose things that aren't what God wants, and it leaves us empty, and it leaves us lonely, and it leaves us discouraged, and it leaves us hurting, and it leaves us with scars. And God says, one day, one day, one day. And you know what the root issue? The root issue of all of our sin, I would argue the root issue of all of our sin is what the serpent told us it would be. You eat of this, you eat of this fruit, you're going to be like God. Everything in my life that is disobedience towards the Lord, whether it's lust, uh, whether it's greed, whether it's my wicked pride, whether it's my desire to be worshipped myself and to have people like me and to to be well-liked by people and the idol that I have of people-pleasing and approval of man, all of those wicked sins of my heart that just lead me to frustration and emptiness and all of those things, they all go back to a root issue that I want to be God. I want to be like God. I want to be God. Every sin goes back to this idea that I want to be God. I don't want to do, I don't, I don't want to do life the way God tells me to do life. I want to do life the way I want to do life. I'm entitled for that. I want pleasure when I want pleasure because I am the God of my own life. I want to eat what I want to eat. I want to drink what I want to drink. I want, to, I want sex to look like what I want it to look like. I don't care what God wants it to look like. This is what I want. And so now the brokenness in us is this picture that we see in the third chapter of the entire Bible, the entire story of God, where we see the fall. We see our sinful fall as mankind. And now we're stuck in this struggle where we say, I want to be God. How is that working for us? Whatever those areas of your life are, whatever those areas of life are that you're like, man, I, I don't want this. Let me ask you, is it about control? Is it about, well, this is mine. This is, I don't want to release that. The solution to our sin problem is Jesus Christ. Right? We know that's the right answer. It's Jesus Christ. The solution to our sin problem is throughout history in the Old Testament, There will be a redeemer, there will be a redeemer, there will be a redeemer. That redeemer came. Paul's telling his people, the redeemer's there. He died, he was God. He died, and he died for all of your crap. All of your shame, all of your guilt, all of your mistakes, all of this stuff that Paul was so drenched in, he died for all of that, out of great love for us. Jesus died, and then he rose again, and he conquered it, and now he ascended into heaven, and now he's standing next to the Father, and he's whispering in his ear, that's my girl. That's my boy right there, interceding for those who put their faith in him. And so now the position of our heart, tonight we say, okay, what's my story? Is it glorifying to God? The parts of my story that aren't glorifying to God, I identify as, well, it's because I'm trying to be my own God. So, so, so I stop. I stop trying to be my own God. I say, okay, today, today I'm going to submit to God. I'm going to put my faith in Jesus Christ as the one true Savior. And he seals me and has me. And then as I wrestle through my life, I keep the proper position of God on the throne of my heart. He sets what's good. He sets what's right. He is in control, not me. 
And then it becomes this tug of war that I said, well, but now I, I really want to be in control of this. Well, well, that's great, but when it's dating, I'm going to do it my way because the clock's ticking. Or, well, when it's money, this is really important, and I might not get another chance to make this much. Or, or when it's whatever it is, we wrestle with being the God of our own life, sitting on the throne of our own life and ruling. And the reality is we're just not made to. We're designed to want to, but that's our brokenness. We're not made to. It doesn't work. It ends up leaving us empty. Paul's story, I hope you relate to it. I hope you connect to it. I hope you see, wow, God saves broken people. And I hope tonight you see where you fit in God's story, that he is in the business of restoring broken people. He desires to enter into their lives through Jesus Christ, only through Jesus Christ. It's the only way we could be possibly worthy enough to come before this kind of a good, good father that we love. That's my hope. Let me pray. Father, we love you, and uh, we love you because of how you loved us, uh, by your spirit. Lord, would you make much of your word tonight, Lord? Would you take your word, would you take the truth that we see in this parenthetical section of Galatians that Paul explains his story and where his authority comes from, and would you let it sink in, and would you remind us of who we are, Lord? Would you remind us that we are desperately in need of a Savior? And would you remind us where our worship comes from, that our worship comes from a response to how you've loved us and how you've saved us? The one true gospel, that you have sent your Son to die for us, to raise again and to now stand next to God and intercede and beg for us. Lord, would we focus our eyes on that, Lord? And would we surrender to that? Would we stop trying to do this life our way, but instead would we surrender to you? Surrender to what you have for us, God. We love you. Holy Spirit, do a work in us. In the name of Jesus, amen. <laughs>